any of the three parts from the other two because it, it teaches one story. And then the other thing that you want to remember is that Jesus taught this parable as a response to the grumbling of the Pharisees. Um, I, this ought to be great comfort for everybody in this room, great encouragement in, for everybody in this room. Um, Jesus loved sinners. And he still does. I mean, Jesus loved disreputable people. And it was the people with reputations who got irritated with Jesus because he persisted in hanging out with disreputable people. And that's us. So I like that fact. <laughs> And I'm very grateful for that fact. And Jesus taught this parable in response to those folks of reputation, those religious leaders, those people who had authority and power and all of the rest, and who thought themselves reputable and thought that it was a disreputable thing for Jesus to be hanging out with disreputable people. So you want to keep those things in mind always as we look at this parable. And then the third thing just by way of review, is to remember that in addition to rebuking the Pharisees, Jesus was also setting before the whole audience, tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees, a right understanding of what God is like. He was seeking to show these folks God as he really is, that he is a seeking God, that he is a compassionate God, that he is a lavish God, and that he is a rejoicing God. I want to ask you again. I know we're not supposed to create images. We're forbidden from doing that. But everybody's got an image in his brain or her brain. And, and I want to ask you, when you close your eyes and you, you see in your mind's eye an image of God, what expression do you see on his face? Do you see the smile of a father You see the smile of a father. Each of these panels of this three-panel parable ends with rejoicing, with the smile of the main character. Now, the person we haven't looked at as we've looked at this passage these last two weeks is the prodigal son, the one who usually gets all of the attention from Luke 15. So let's look today at the prodigal son and pay some attention to the prodigal son, but with all of these other things very much in mind. Luke 15, beginning at verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. <coughs> Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, pay attention to that phrase, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. This is a Jewish young man, remember, in this parable. And he has hired himself out to a Gentile, to a non-Jewish person, hired himself out 
to a citizen of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, pig slop. But no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things might be. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. So his father came out and entreated him. He answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we um, ask you again that you'd give us your spirit. We We don't see your spirit. We confess that we don't understand how your spirit works. But we ask you, Father and Son, that you would send your spirit in a special way, because we need your spirit for this, your word, to make a difference in our lives so that we can understand it, so that it can get into our hearts, so that we can be changed by it. You always change things by your word and spirit. And we, Lord Jesus, before you, confess that we need both your word and your spirit if we're to be changed. So come and help us, we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So here we have this this younger son before us, this prodigal son. And if you think about this story, you think about this prodigal son. I, let me suggest this to you. This just one. I had one of those um, epiphany kinds of moments this last week. You know, you have those epiphany moments, like lights go on in dark places and you see things you never saw before. Woo! 
I mean, it didn't happen literally, but I thought, man, you know, the whole of the Bible story is encapsulated in this part of this parable. The whole of the Bible story. I mean, think about it. Here's the son who's at home in his father's house. He has all of the blessedness of his father's house. Right? He's at home. And what does he do? He rebels. And he leaves home. And he goes to a faraway land. And you see in the story the degradation of rebellion and and being removed and being eliminated and going away from home. And then what happens? He's, he's back home. He comes back home. Those of you who have been around here for a while, this is the basic architecture of the whole of human history that you've got in this part of the parable. You've got, you've got the Father's house, creation, Eden, paradise. And then you've got the fall. You've got rebellion and, and running away. And then you've got... What next? Redemption and restoration being brought back home. You've got the whole enchilada in this parable, this part of the parable. Now the focus is on this younger son. And this younger son, honestly, it's like, it's like, he's like you and me. He's like us. Um, and the younger son has what I would suggest is a kind of a threefold problem. He's got a problem, and I want to suggest to you that it's a, that it's a threefold problem. Um, he has a problem with desire, and he has a problem with his will, and then he's got the consequence of those first two problems. He's got a problem of being lost. The father says what is true of the son is that he was lost. He, he was dead. He was lost, but he's He's been found. You know, the son is lost, just like the sheep was lost, just like the coin was lost. The son was lost. And that's the, the third part of his problem. But the first part of his problem is a problem with desire. With desire. Now, I want to be careful here. I'm using my prepositions very carefully. He has a problem with desire, with his desire, his problem is not desire itself, as I think we'll see. But it's what happens to his desire. So it's not a problem of desiring, of desire. It's a problem with his desire and the way his desire manifests itself. And look at verse 11, and you see his desire going terribly wrong. Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Give me my share of the inheritance. Now grab a commentary this week or maybe get a good study Bible and read some of the notes and you'll, you'll learn from commentaries or from the notes that this was a very untoward thing that this young man was doing. In effect, he was really wishing that his father were dead so that he could have what would come to him. That's what he was wishing. I, I wish you were dead so that I could have what's coming. I mean, it's a thing of incredible offense that this younger son says to his father. And why does he do it? Well, he does it because he, he really desires something, doesn't he? he? What does he desire? Well, he desires, what's he desire? He desires the money. He desires the estate, right? He wants the stuff. Remember George Carlin? Some of you old people in this room, you remember George Carlin? He did this comedy sketch on his stuff, you know, my stuff. I got stuff. I got stuff everywhere. Stuff, stuff, stuff. This young, this young fellow wanted 
the inheritance. He wanted the money. He wanted the stuff. And why did he want the money? Why did he desire the money? Why did he desire the stuff? The story, I think, shows us pretty clearly that that he had other desires that were deeper desires. And the way to satisfy those deeper desires was to have the money, was to have the stuff so that those deeper desires could be satisfied. Now, here's, here's the first thing I want to make sure we understand about this. Sometimes, as I interact with Christians, as I listen to Christians, I listen to folks talk, they, they, I think they have a misunderstanding of the nature of desire. Desire is a human thing. It is a human thing to desire. You listen to Eastern, some Eastern religions, the goal in some Eastern religions is to be free of desire because desire itself is the problem. It's, it's desiring things that causes you to accumulate bad karma. Okay. Presumably in that... In that equation, even the desire to be free of a desire is a bad thing because even desiring, getting rid of desire, would accumulate bad karma for you. But let me tell you something. You are created with a capacity for desire. And you will never stop desiring. To ask a human being to stop desiring is to ask a human being to stop being human. It is one of the distinguishing features of human beings that they desire. They can conceive of things. They can engage in self-analysis. They can look at themselves. They can conceive thoughts in their minds. They can identify their passions and their longings. That's all a part of what it is to be human. Dogs don't desire. You may think that they do, but they don't. Dogs respond to stimuli, okay? It may look like they desire dog food, which in my way of measuring things is not a particularly desirable thing, but they're pretty satisfied with it. Put it in a dish of some kind, stick it on some newspaper in the laundry room floor, and they're very happy. But what is it that causes them to desire their dog food? It's the turmoil in the stomach, It's a stimulus. They don't think about it. They simply respond. You're different from dogs. The reason you're different from dogs is because there's a personal creator who is really there, who has created you in his image with a capacity to desire. You're like God in that respect. God desires things. We're going to see that in a minute. God has desires. He has passions. He has longings. And human beings created in his image by a personal God who is really there, not the fabrication of somebody's imagination, but a real, infinite, and eternal person creates human beings after his likeness, in his image, with desire. It is never going to go away. Don't try and get rid of it. That's not the problem with the younger son. The problem with the younger son is not his desire. Here's the problem with the younger son. The younger son detached his desire from his father. Desire detached from God leads to death. Just trust me. If you don't know it in your own experience, just trust me. Desire detached from God 
desire detached from the Father's house leads to death. It did for Adam and Eve. They're created in the midst of this paradise. They're set in this environment of unimaginable abundance and blessedness. And God, I'm paraphrasing, okay, I'm reading between the lines a bit, but I'm giving you what I think really is an accurate exposition of what is going on in the garden. God basically says to the man and the woman, I've created you with desire. Now go, satisfy your desire to your heart's content. Eat of all of the fruit and the fullness of the garden. Have at it. God doesn't say don't desire these things. But you see, there was one thing, one thing that was set apart, which for them would mean death. And they believed the lie. They listened to the lie. They listened to the whispering in the ear. You know, if you possess knowledge, knowledge like the knowledge God has, then you'll really, really be free. And you'll really, really know life. And so their desire became detached from God. And as God promised, as God warned, the result was death everywhere. Desire detached from God. This is the deal. Desire detached from the only thing in the whole universe sufficient to satisfy the deepest desires the desires that drive all of the other desires, detachment from the only one who can satisfy those deeper desires leads to death. It did for the younger son. He detached himself from his father's house. He detached himself from his father. And I encouraged you in the reading of the passage to pay attention to that phrase. He spent everything. See, here's what happens. When desire gets detached from God, who alone is the infinite and limitless source of all of the things that you want. I don't, I don't know all of you well. I'm not in your skin, but I'm in my own skin. And I know that being in your skin isn't a whole lot different from being in my skin when you distill it down to its essence. And what I want and what you want is love, You want to be free. You want to be safe. You want to be secure. You want to enjoy abundance and fullness and peace. You have an insatiable desire for these things. And when you disconnect yourself from the one who possesses these things and who gives these things without limit who is the source of them and who gives them freely. When you disconnect desire from the source and you replace that source with other objects, desire has become detached from God and this all leads to death. Because none of these things is infinite and eternal and unchanging 
in wisdom, power, loveliness, beauty, goodness, truth, delightfulness, peace, joy, and all of the rest. They are all finite. They are all limited, and they can't get it done. Let me ask you something. If you had a billion dollars today, one billion dollars, and you spent one billion dollars, wouldn't it be nice? I mean, you think, man, if I had a billion bucks, If you spent $100,000 an hour for eight hours in a five-day work week, do you know how long it would take you to get rid of a billion dollars spending at that rate? 250 weeks. That's nearly five years. And you know what I know about you and and me? When I got done, I'd want another billion. I'd need another billion. Because the trinkets and gadgets that I bought five years ago would have begun to rot and rust and they'd need to be replaced. Or they'd be older. And the Joneses next door to me would have gotten the newer model. And so you see, I'd have to have another billion. After five years of spending $100,000 an hour, eight hours a day, five days a week, 250, because these things cannot satisfy. That's what this guy tried to do. He took it all. The text says he bundled everything up and he headed off. And when he had spent everything, where was he? Destitute. Destitute. In need desperately in need. Desire itself was not his problem. Desire is inevitable. It's never going to go away. The question is, to what do I attach my desire, my longing, my deep and passionate longings? Look, I don't mean to be unkind in this. I didn't tell the story Jesus did. And Jesus is the incarnation of kindness and mercy and compassion. He's the incarnation of love. He just wants us to face the truth about ourselves. And the truth is, there are people, perhaps some in this room, who are feeling the tectonic shift, plates shift under their feet because of the uncertain stock market and an uncertain economy. Because our hearts have gotten way too attached to where the decimal point is. And I'm telling you, if you get your heart attached to the decimal point, it's going to break your heart. C.S. Lewis said it, idols always break the hearts of their worshipers. I don't know what it is for you. I know some of what it is for me. I'll tell you. I mean, I'm not going to tell you now because it would take too long. But I love so many things more than Jesus because I think those things are going to save me. I think they're going to love me. I think they're going to keep me safe. And all of them have turned to dust in my hands. Desire is not the problem. You're going to desire forever. Forever. Everybody in this room is going to desire forever. The question is, What do I affix my desire to? What do I attach my desire to? 
So he's got a problem with desire, and that leads, frankly, to his second second problem. And it's a problem of his will. See, here's the other thing that happens. When you detach desire from the only one who can satisfy the deepest longings of your soul, when you detach desire from God, when you detach desire from the Father's house, your will becomes a slave. Your will becomes a slave. You are enslaved to the things that you desire. Now, you can be a servant and a son or a daughter and have your heart attached to the one who satisfies the deepest longings of your soul, or you can attach your heart to something else and you can all the while think that you're free, but I will tell you progressively, more and more you become a slave because when desire is detached from God, the will becomes enslaved. What is the will? It's the means by which we do stuff, by which we engage things, by which we act. Let me tell you, the will is not free. Okay? I'm just telling you, the will is not free. If you want to talk to me about free will, I'd be happy to talk to you about free will. But I'm telling you, the will is not free. The will is always connected to the object of one's desire. The will never acts apart from desire. The will, you never do anything apart from influence. Go buy a car. Why do you, ever ask yourself, why do you buy the car that you buy? I'll guarantee you there are all kinds of factors that are influencing your decision to buy that car. The exercise of the will. All kinds of things. And I'm just going to suggest to you that for most of us, the things that are influencing the decisions that we make are, frankly, prisons. They're bondages of one kind or another. Because when desire gets detached from God, when desire gets detached from the Father's house and is fixed upon anything other than God, anything other than the blessedness and fullness of the Father's house, the will becomes enslaved and is in bondage to the objects of affection that our hearts get attached to. It's just the way it is. Think about it. Examine yourselves. Look at your own desires. Look at your own longings. And look at the decisions, the acts, the things that emerge as you make choices. It's not pleasant to think about it, I suppose. It's not what we want to think about ourselves, but the fact of the matter is the will is always enslaved. It is either enslaved to God who is just and righteous and loving and merciful and kind, infinitely so, and so is able to satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts or the will is enslaved to those objects of affection that only lead to death. And that's where this young man ends up. Look, and he keeps spending, and he keeps spending, and he keeps spending. Why does he keep spending? Spending, spending, spending. He exhausts it all. 
because his heart is enslaved to something that will never satisfy him and he always acts in ways that are consistent with those things that his heart are enslaved by. The will's not free. The will is in bondage to something. Either God who is righteousness and goodness and justice and peace and blessedness and all the rest where the will is enslaved to those things which lead to death. Read Romans 6. I'll just encourage you. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I'll just encourage you to read Romans 6, where Paul makes this point. You either are a slave of righteousness leading to, right, to life, or you are the slave of unrighteousness leading to death. So here's the son. He has desire. It is desire that is detached from the father, Desire detached from the father leads to bondage, leads to degradation, and it leads then to being lost, to being lost. I think I said, I don't know if I said this last week, but this was another one of those epiphanies. You know, there are only two things that are constant in this three-paneled parable, lostness and rejoicing. Lostness and rejoicing. Sheep is lost. The coin is lost, and the son who has disconnected himself from the father's house is lost. The father says it. And why does he rejoice? He rejoices because what was lost has, has been found. Lostness and rejoicing. You know, the thing, the thing that isn't constant in, this, in the three panels of this three-panel parable this is so striking. It is so stunning. It is so arresting. The thing that is not a constant in each of the three panels is seeking. The shepherd seeks the lost sheep. The woman seeks the lost coin. But in the third panel, there's no seeker. There's a seeky, but there's no seeker. And why do you suppose that is? Think about the parable, the last panel of the parable, but think about the parable Lostness, seeking, rejoicing. Think about the third panel. Here is this father. He has two sons. He loves his sons. Everything that he has, everything that belongs to him, belongs to his sons. But one of his sons one of his sons has wandered off. One of his sons has rebelled and run. And who knows how long it's been. Maybe it's been five years. Maybe he took the billion with him. Maybe he spent $100,000 an hour, eight-hour days, five-day work. Maybe it's the end of the five years. He doesn't know how long he's been gone. But what he has concluded, the text tells us, what he has concluded is that the son is dead. 
He's gone forever. But the father who loves his boys, who loves his sons, keeps looking, keeps looking, keeps looking. Now, folks, what would you expect the elder brother to do? What would you expect the elder brother to do if you're writing the story? You know, somebody told me one time that he didn't like it when ministers wept. He thought it was untoward. What would you expect the elder brother to do? Wouldn't you expect the elder brother to say, Dad, I'll go find him. I'll go get him. And I'll bring him home to you. You know why there's no elder brother in the third panel of the parable? Or why there's no seeker in the third panel of the parable? Because the seeker is standing in the midst of the tax collectors and the sinners surrounded by the Pharisees. Because the true elder brother, the real elder brother, left his father's house and went to find the younger sons and daughters. He left home. I was sitting at my study table this morning thinking about that. I'm sorry, I couldn't help it. The elder brother left home and came to find me whose desires are so disordered and so detached from the father whose life is so reckless and foolish and stupid who is relentlessly disconnecting himself from the father. But the elder brother left home and came to find me. And what he seeks, he finds. And what he finds, he saves. And what he saves, he brings back home. And that is you. That's why there's no seeker in the third panel of the the parable. Because the seeker is standing in the midst of the tax collectors and sinners, and that is the final and tragic rebuke of the Pharisees. You Pharisees, you elder brothers, not only should you be delighting in what is happening, but you yourselves tragically were not the elder brothers seeking seeking the lost sheep, seeking the lost coins, seeking the lost sons and daughters. And so I have come as the better elder brother to seek and to save that which is lost. I am so glad, as I said at the beginning, that Jesus, and I don't mean this in some clever, trite, silly, simplistic way. I am so 
very thankful that Jesus likes to associate with sinners. I am so thankful that the elder brother has come for me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you that as the God of heaven and earth, as the Son of your Father, you were pleased. Paul tells us in his letter to the Philippians, you were pleased to empty yourself, to empty yourself of all of your glory and rights and privileges and come into this world to seek and to save that which was lost. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you've come for sinners like me. And Lord Jesus, I thank you that when you take us home, you take us back to the source of all joy and all delight and all happiness and security, and safety, and love, and all of the rest. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would look upon this congregation with mercy, that you would see us in our need, and that you would come to anyone in this room who may yet be lost. Would you find that person? Would you break down that resistance that willfulness, would you overcome it? And would you take that man, that woman, that child back home to the Father? And for those of us in this room, Lord, who have some understanding of these things, would you give us grace to see just how much we have been loved and pursued and rescued and restored by our elder brother, you Lord Jesus, help us to believe it and rest in it. We pray in your name. Amen. I invite you to stand with me as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. Let's stand together and sing the first two verses of Lift High the Cross. <clears throat>